0: Okay, let me explain to you. Pick up more. What we're going to do this morning? What what book are we studying? Not today. Not today. Not Romans today. Um, We will pick up our Romans study next week. And listen, we finish the sin section next week. Every. You ever just feel like you've been beat on for two two months, huh? Center, 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 center. Feel like that's all we've been saying, and that that's on purpose. Paul's a master logician, and he is purposefully zeroing in on every single person who's ever lived to show that we're all sinners. So next week we'll finish the sin section, which goes through. Uh, for those of you that are studying along with us, and I do encourage you to do that. Next week we'll focus on Romans chapter 3, verses 9-20. through 20. Uh, So if you want to read that study, that leading up to next week, that would be great. Today, um, we started our music this morning with the first song that we ever sang corporately together. I want to go back and pull out an old message, which is funny because most of y'all... Will not have heard will not have heard this. Um, I preached this message here if I remember right it was two weeks before we actually had our first service together as living truth and Providence becoming Providence and I just couldn't get couldn't get past the nagging feeling um, that we needed to hear this again in our situation, let me be, for those of you who do know, for those of you who don't know, it's been a pretty rough six months here. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's been hard. Um, It's been emotional. It's been upsetting. Actually, all year, truthfully. This group of people has seen warfare. I really believe that. And we're not victims. Please don't don't do not hear me saying that. No, I'm not saying illicit feelings of poor us this morning. Again, the hope I hope that what we saw in the music was just the opposite of that. We're not victims. But we are warriors. And we are in a war. And it's real. And all of these feelings that you've been feeling, all of these things that have been happening, all of these casualties and all these choices that people have made are hard. It's hard. I have been, and again, this is not about me, but I can only speak from my perspective. I have been emotionally wrung out for about 10 months now. It's been hard. So I wanted to circle the wagons this morning. I wanted us to circle the wagons this morning. And as I've thought back over the process that brought these two groups together that that have turned into this group that we have here this morning, I just think we need to be reminded of some things. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to spend our time this morning between two books. We're going to spend... uh, The first passage that we're going to read is in Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts as well. And I want to ask you a question as we start this morning. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Uh, What does that mean? Sovereign means that God is reigning. You see the word sovereign up there? See the last part of the word? R-E-I-G-N, reign, that God is reigning and in full control of everything that's going on. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God is in control of everything that is going on around us? Do you believe that God is in control of everything that is going on around us? I mean, do you really believe it? We're going to see God's sovereignty in action today through the Word. And I think it might surprise you the way it looks. And as we dive in, I'm going to read a familiar passage of Scripture. and We've used it many times here. Something that God said Himself in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In our present circumstances, we look around as we see changes and differences from what we're used to. And as we look at God's Word today, I want you to remember what I just read. That God said, I'm not like you. My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Keep that in mind. Now, anybody know the biggest church in America? Let me give you a visual hint. Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas with Pastor Joel Osteen boasts an attendance... Ready for this? Look, look around. Look around, everybody. Look around. They boast an attendance of forty-three thousand five hundred people per week. Let me say that again: forty-three thousand five hundred people a week. Yeah, <laughs> they have four. English speaking services and two Spanish speaking services per week. They meet in a renovated basketball arena, as you can see there, and they run on a yearly budget bigger than some third world countries, 70 to 80 million dollars a year. Fifty-three here today. Fifty-three thousand? No. Their influence is hardly contained to their building, however. Their services are broadcast to over seven million television viewers in over 100 countries. Pastor Joel does not take a salary from the church, but is a millionaire many times over because of the sale totals from his books that carry his message to millions more. The church's meteoric growth started when Joel Osteen took over as pastor after the death of his father, John Osteen. How did the growth happen? According to research done by ChristianPost.com, Lakewood and other megachurches have some things in common that seem to contribute to their exponential growth. And let me tell you this one, this is not how to grow your church message, just so you know. ChristianPost.com says this is what these megachurches have in common. Megachurch services feature a come-as-you-are atmosphere. All right, I think we're all right there. Rock music, and what one researcher calls a multi-sensory melange of visuals and other elements to stimulate the senses, as well as small group participation and a shared focus on the message from a charismatic pastor. End of quote. Now my question to you is, how do you think the Apostle Paul would react to this research? Do you think he would alter his methods to grow the churches he was starting in the Roman world of his time? Today we're going to look at the intro to and background to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at God's odd way of starting a church and draw hope, help, and encouragement, knowing that what God starts, as odd as it may look, He perfects in His way, in His time. If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. (coughs) We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And if you would stand as we read the Word together. Please out of respect and veneration for the Word of God. Philippians 1, 1 1-6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come and we have questions, we have doubts, we have fears, we have anxieties, but we also have you. Help us to know that what you start, you finish. And you don't just finish it, you perfect it. Give us insight through the power of your Holy Spirit into your holy, inspired word. And may it affect us, God. May it affect us and may we be in awe and wonder of who you are. Let me ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, our goal here is not to look at these verses in depth or even to cover them at all, really. We're not going to get in, just, I wanted you to hear that, to know that this is the group that Paul was addressing. What we're going to do is see who Paul is writing to, who he's writing these loving words to, and how he came to know them in the first place. We'll gather some historical and geographical information so we can know the people Paul was speaking to and the message he was trying to convey to them. Along the way, we'll see three things which will serve as our outline. Now remember, this is the first message I ever spoke here. I want to make sure I had a good three-point outline. A good three-point alliterated outline. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline. Point one, God's odd path. God's odd path. Point two is God's odd people. And point three is God's odd purpose. God's odd path, God's odd people, and God's odd purpose. Try to say that ten times real fast. Don't do it right now, do it later. Do it at dinner when we're reading. Through the process, we'll see God's sovereign hand orchestrating all things together and, as odd as it might seem, how His way of establishing His people is better than any formula we could ever follow from ChristianPost.com or otherwise. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, and it would be really helpful if you did. Um, the background of Paul's dealings with the Philippians is found in the account of his second missionary journey in Acts Chapter 16, so if you would go there. Acts chapter 16. And I want to read there, and I won't have you stand up for this, okay? But I want to read what the Holy Spirit has preserved for us for God's glory and for our good. We're going to start Acts chapter 16, verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 10 initially. Now remember, we're trying to get the understanding of who was Paul talking to when he wrote that introduction to the Philippians? give you some background. You're like, I don't like background. You're going to like this background, I promise. You're going to like this background. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. And they, talking about Paul and his companions, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas... And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Pretty neat, isn't it? What evidences of God's control do we see in the process the apostle and his friends had in getting to Philippi? Now let me show you this map here. Just so you know, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He started down there in Jerusalem. He went up. Now listen, remember this guy walked a lot. I can't imagine what his feet looked like, by the way. But he goes up and what we're running into today is they're about right here where this arrow's at. Okay, And something happens. Second missionary journey. He's left Antioch. Which has been his home base, and moved north and west through the provinces of Syria and Cilicia through the towns of Derby and Lystra. Now, at Derby and Lystra, which I don't know if you can see that or not, it's kind of the. A... Okay, Aaron can see it. He ran into a guy named Timothy in Derby and Lystra, and he liked him so much, he said, Hey, won't you come with me? And Timothy goes with him. The text then says that they passed through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And now, watch this. It says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, did you hear that? Who did what here? They want to go up into Asia, which is kind of that way. But the Holy Spirit forbade the team to speak the word in Asia. So the question that I hope pops in your mind is, but doesn't God want us to go everywhere speaking the word, preaching the gospel? Aren't we supposed to preach the gospel to all nations? Yes and yes. But here's the key. God will direct where we go and when we go. You want more proof? Keep reading. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. So they come up to Mysia up here near the shore and they want to go back, which is where God had told them not to go. Oh, what? Stop it. So they're here. I've got to steady my hand. I look like a nervous guy. They're here and they want to go back this way. Now when they were here, they wanted to go this way. Now they're here and they want to go back this way. What does God say? The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, again, do you see the sovereignty of God in direct contact with the footsteps of these men? You think they might have been disappointed? You think they might have been even a little confused at being told no twice now? You think they might have been frustrated at having to change their plans to line up with God? I would say that they probably were. Anybody ever been there? been frustrated that your plans aren't working out? God's doing something else. (laughs) Sovereignty. But watch this. It says, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Can't go this way, so they go down to here. Thanks for the pointer. That's awesome. Okay, sorry. They went down to Troas, so big deal. Actually, it is a pretty big deal. What's so special about that? Something significant happens in Troas. Tell me if you spot it. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 of Acts 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now what happened in Troas what's the big deal here he had a vision no that's not what I'm looking for now he could have had the vision anywhere right that's not really the significant thing that happened in Troas so what is the big deal I want you to look at verses 8. Let let me read a passage here out of this passage we just read. Verse 8 and verse 10. Something happened in Troas that could not have happened anywhere else. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What's the switch there? from verse 8 to verse 10. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Verse 10, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. What's the difference? They to we. They to we. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So that means that in Troas, the author of the book, joined their group. Who was the author of the book? Anybody? book of Acts. Luke. Luke, through church tradition, through pretty much everybody except, except these liberal guys that want to rewrite everything, Pretty much is pretty much everybody's in agreement that Luke, the beloved physician, wrote the book of Acts, but that's not all. What other book might Luke have written? John? Nah. No. Luke probably wrote the book of Luke as well, right? Now, get a hold of this. Are you ready? So by God's sovereign direction, they want to go into Asia. They want to go into Bithynia. Holy Spirit says no. The Spirit of Jesus says no. God had something for them in Troas. And that something was Luke. Now get a hold of this. Luke, from this point on, a doctor would travel with them. Surely, surely, he helped tend to Paul's many physical needs because Paul took a beating on these trips, literally. It probably helped to have a doctor along the way, right? Wouldn't you think so? Paul got stoned. Paul got whipped. Paul probably got sick. They had a doctor with him, but that's not all. Luke would end up writing two books of our New Testament. Now get this. Those two books make up over a fourth of your New Testament. of the New Testament was written by one man and that one man was found in Troas. God had a plan. God had a reason for them to not go into Asia, for them to not go into Bithynia. God had a man in Troas that He had to have a part of this group. So God sovereignly directed them to Dr. Luke. God was in control even in the midst of their probable discouragement and uncertainty. God's odd path was clearly sovereignly chosen. Who was in control of their path? Sunday school question. That's a softball, guys. Who was in control of their path? Starts with a G, ends with a D. There's a vowel in the middle that's not A, E, I, or U. Who was in control of their path? Oh my gosh. Yes, it was God. God was in control of their path. So God's odd path leads them through a vision to Philippi. After being in Troas, they have this vision, right? Paul has a vision. A guy from Macedonia come over to us. So having determined that they needed to preach the gospel in Macedonia, they end up in Philippi, which brings us to our second point, God's odd people. So they leave Troas and they go to Philippi. God's odd path will now lead them to God's odd people. The narrative introduces us to three specific people that Paul's brood comes into contact with. And they are odd when you think about them together. Acts 16, we're going to read verses 11 through 15 where we meet our first odd person. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, Paul's usual mode of operation was to go into a city, find the Jewish synagogue and begin reasoning with the religious folk there, trying to prove to them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But here he doesn't do that which would imply that there's probably not a Jewish synagogue in Philippi. He goes to the river where he supposes he can fish. No, he goes to the river where he supposes there's a place of prayer. And who does he speak to? The text says the women who had come together. Why is it always the women that are praying? Men? That's not in my notes. Sorry. Sorry. Now, it may not seem odd to us that He spoke to the women, but women weren't held in as high regard as we would hold them today in that time. They were actually lesser citizens, so to speak. So, to be speaking to them would be odd. And here we meet our first odd person, Lydia. We see three details about her life. She was from Thyatira, she was a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. Now, these three facts taken together make Lydia odd. Why? Listen to this. This is from research about Thyatira. Thyatira was specially noted for the trade guilds which were probably more completely organized there than in any other ancient city. So what's that mean? Stick with me. Every artisan belonged to a guild and every guild which was an incorporated organization possessed property in its own name, the guild did, made contracts for great constructions and wielded a wide influence. Powerful among them was the guild of coppersmiths. Another was the guild of the dyers D Y E R S, who it is believed made use of the matter root instead of shellfish for making the purple dye stuffs. A member of this guild seemed to have been Lydia of Thyatira, who according to Acts 14 sold her dyes in Philippi. I'm still quoting from the research. The color obtained by the use of this dye is now called Turkish red. The guilds were closely connected with the Asiatic religion of the place. Pagan feasts with which immoral practices were associated were held, and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. It was taught by many of the early church that no Christian might belong to one of the guilds, and thus the greatest opposition to Christianity was presented." End of quote. Now do you see why this is odd? Lydia is a member of a trade guild. She's a worshiper of God. She doesn't really know about Christianity yet, but she's about to be introduced to the gospel, and when she's introduced to the gospel and God opens up her heart to receive what Paul's saying, she's going to be converted, and instantly she's not going to be a member of that guild anymore. It's incompatible with Christianity to be a part of the guild. It's kind of odd. So, all this says about Lydia, she was probably wealthy and powerful, selling purple garments. Matt Chandler says she's got the place in Thyatira, she's got the place in Philippi. Matt Chandler says it's kind of like a fashion designer with houses in New York and L.A. She lives in Thyatira, travels to Philippi to sell her wares. But she is described as a worshiper of God. And again, this is odd considering the guilds were associated with the Asiatic religions and opposed Christianity. But God had Lydia in His sights. What does it say that He did? Verse 14 says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, what I just read, who did what? The Lord did what Lydia could not do. He opened her heart. And what did He open her heart to do? To pay attention to what was said by Paul. It was a sovereign act of God. So He opens her heart. She gets saved and baptized. By the way, the New Testament order is always salvation and baptism. An unbaptized Christian is a disobedient Christian. Side note. Then she makes them, Lydia makes them stay with her at her house and her whole household gets saved and baptized. So sovereignty saved a whole house. So that's the first odd person, Lydia. Our next odd person is probably the oddest of the three that we'll see. We see the inroads God has made into the rich and powerful. So God wants to start a church, so He finds this rich lady, this rich family. Good idea, God. Take care of the money first. (laughs) Yeah. Go for the influencers. Find the important people. Way to go, God. But who's next? Acts 16, 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So our second odd person is a slave girl. Pretty much a 180 degree turn from the rich, powerful, fashionista Lydia. This slave girl was not a worshiper of God, but was possessed by a spirit of divination. She was not wealthy, but was owned by others. Paul didn't go to her. She followed him around. Paul wasn't fond of her. He was annoyed by her. Now stop just a second. Listen to me, Providence Bible Church. It may be that person that annoys the snot out of you that God is going to use you to reach. Put that in your pocket. Carry it around with you. We don't want to hear that. Odd indeed. Paul casts out her evil spirit. Now do we know she was saved? From the text we do not. But I'm pretty sure that Paul's not going to cast a demon out of a girl and say, now run along, you're getting on my nerves. I just don't think that's his way. don't think it should be ours either, by the way. I don't think he would have left her alone after that experience because she would have been disowned by her owners. She would have been by herself. Widows, orphans, those are the kind of people that we're supposed to be reaching out to. So why her? Did God have a sovereign purpose in orchestrating this event? Did God sovereignly allow her to be possessed so she could get deliverance at this particular time? Now what did I just say? Did God sovereignly allow her to be possessed so that she could sovereignly be delivered at this appointed time? Hmm. I believe so. And if we keep reading, we'll meet our third odd person. The folks that owned the slave girl got mad. Why'd they get mad? Because their income stream had dried up when the slave girl couldn't produce the divination. So go back to Acts 16, starting verse 19. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." Looks like God's odd path and God's odd people didn't work out too good for Paul and Silas, does it? If you are taking notes, mentally or physically, write this down. Sovereignty rarely looks like what we want it to. Sovereignty rarely looks like what we want it to. Here they are in jail. A couple of days ago, they're thinking they're planting a church with a core family of rich, powerful people. Now they're in jail after an encounter with demons and sinners. Why? Because God had a plan for someone. Go back to verse 25 now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. (laughs) Do you get that? They're in jail Okay, you don't get it. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. In a sovereign act, God freed Paul and Silas, but that's not all. All the prisoners were freed, and get this, none of them left. Now, you think it was just because they were nice guys? We better stay here. I know the doors are open, I know the chains are gone, but we're just going to stay here because we're nice guys. Nice guys normally don't end up in jail. You say, what well, Paul and Silas did. These were criminals, people, and they're in jail. The doors open, the chains fall off, and none of them left. None of them left sovereignty. And why? Because of the jailer. Not because they were afraid of the jailer, but God had a purpose for the jailer. Here's a guy who was probably a retired Roman soldier who was sent to Philippi to help Romanize the colony. This was a common practice in the Roman culture. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. Philippi was a Roman colony. Augustus had settled his veterans there after the battles of Philippi and Actium. Not all residents of Philippi were Roman citizens, but all would know what citizenship meant. The point of creating colonies was twofold. First, it was aimed at extending Roman influence around the Mediterranean world, creating cells and networks of people loyal to Caesar in the wider culture. Second, it was one way of avoiding the problems of overcrowding in the capital itself. The emperor certainly did not want retired soldiers with time and blood on their hands hanging around Rome ready to cause trouble. Much better for them to be establishing farms and businesses elsewhere." End of quote. So, this transplanted soldier was responsible for keeping the prisoner secure. If they escaped, he was dead. As a jailer, you ever seen those clips or memes? You had one job. You had one job. This guy had one job. None of the prisoners escape. If any of the prisoners escape, you die. You think your job's stressful. <laughs> they get out, you die. So when he saw that the doors were open, he assumed everyone was gone. So he pulled his sword to kill himself. Might as well. But Paul says, hey, we're all here. Don't hurt yourself. And what was the result? The aforementioned jailer is brought to the place of salvation. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And not just him. Verse 32 says, Paul and Silas spoke the word to him and to all who were in his house. And that's followed by verse 33, which says that he and all his house were baptized again him and his whole house. This blue-collar everyman had probably went to work that day just like any other day. He wasn't looking for an encounter with God, but he certainly got one. So to get the big picture, God had sovereignly directed Paul to Lydia and her family, a freed slave girl, and a soldier slash jailer in his family. Probably not the people Paul would have picked but sovereignty has a plan of its own, even to the extent of hand-selecting some odd people for His sovereign purpose. So after following God's odd path to Philippi, where they met God's odd people, Paul and Silas and their group of travelers give us a glimpse into God's odd purpose. Point 3, verses 35 through 40 bring us to that purpose and we're almost done. Verse 35 of Acts 16. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul, (laughs) but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! Exclamation point. Let them come themselves and take us out. You just got to love Paul, by the way. (laughs) Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Because here's the the deal, guys. Citizens had special privileges. You didn't beat Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So after an odd run-in with the local authorities where Paul embarrasses them into freeing him and Silas we see what may be the oddest thing of all of this. Look at verse 39. After freeing Paul and Silas, the authorities beg them to leave. And what do they do? Do they stay and fight for the health of the church? Do they stay around to maintain the status quo? Nope. They go see Lydia and the brothers. They encourage them and then they... They leave. Now if you'll remember, one of the most important things the church growth researchers found necessary for megachurch health was a charismatic leader. Why would God send Paul and company packing? Couldn't they help the church by sticking around and teaching them, encouraging them, drawing people in with their war stories? Maybe. Maybe. But God's odd purpose isn't really all that odd. God's purpose is to be the center of attention of any church. He wants the glory and says He will not share that glory with another. Paul could have stayed around and built a big church. He had everything that he needed to do that. But it wasn't God's plan. A peek back into Paul's first journey shows that he learned this lesson early. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Acts 14, verses 21 through 23, this is Paul's first journey. And we see here how Paul handled the churches he had started on his first journey. Here's the passage. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. God's odd purpose is summed up in verse 23, and it said this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. God's odd purpose is that these people would be committed to Him in whom they had believed. He wants His people to commit themselves to the Lord in whom they believe. God's purpose always comes down to God's glory. He wants His people to both know and show His glory. And He will take odd steps to make sure that that happens. In this case, It it meant removing what could have been a major crutch. God did not want His churches depending on Paul. He wanted His churches depending on him. That was their only choice after Paul and the boys left town under government escort. Knowing that the government wasn't going to be friendly to them, probably pushed them closer and closer to the omnipotent sovereign God as well. So the fashion mogul, the slave girl, and the jailer committed themselves to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so God's sovereign, odd purpose was realized. Now having seen God's odd path, God's odd people, and God's odd purpose in the Philippians narrative, we have to ask ourselves, how does this affect us? As with any time spent in studying God's Word, we have to see how it applies to our lives individually and our life collectively. And in this case, I think it's pretty obvious. As individuals, we have to see the value of knowing and serving the sovereign God. Our circumstances take on a whole different perspective when we know that God is in direct command of them. Look around. Physically. Look around. Turn your heads. Put your eyes on something besides what you're looking at. Look around. I want you to take the whole building in. The whole room. Now let me read what I just read again. Our circumstances take on a whole different perspective when we know that God is in direct command of them. There are so many different examples of adverse situations working out for the greater good in the Bible. Joseph, Moses, Job, David, and on and on and on show that God doesn't work on our timetable or even in our realm of thinking. Remember the verse from Isaiah at the beginning? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, God said. In the middle of the worst times... There is peace and joy even in knowing that God is in control. We may not always get answers to the questions of why and how, but the who question is settled. And the answer to the who question is God. God is sovereign. God is in control. Settling this question is the best stabilizer in anyone's life. And then what about our corporate life? What about our church life? What about Providence Bible Church two and a half years later? What's the application for us as a body? I think it gets back to our outline points. With our faith in a sovereign God, and please don't get tired of that phrase, sovereign God, sovereign God. We have to know We have to know that God has us on His path with His people so that we can accomplish His purpose. And yes, we have to admit that it is a little bit odd. Isn't it? It's odd. Weird. It's not what I would have drawn up how about you? But that does not diminish His glory one bit. As a matter of fact, it draws attention to that glory. This thing we call Providence Bible Church can only work if it's His work. It does not depend on man and his strivings. It does not depend on One family, two family, five families. Depends on God. His path, His people, and His purposes. I remember back when we sat down, myself and Hamlet and Andrew and Moon, talking about all this. And I remember very clearly Hamlet saying, you know this is going to take a miracle to work. And he was right. He's still right. If this is going to work, it's going to take a miracle. Now my question is, are you willing to accept the miracle that God sends us? you still want a miracle? you still want it to work? Do you still want to glorify God with this group of people? Going to take a miracle. Without the direct intervention of a sovereign, omnipotent God, we have no hope. Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to accept the divine no. But we can only do that if we know that He is in complete control. Maybe our plans or our initial thoughts don't work out. We're okay with trusting God that He has something else for us. Maybe it doesn't look as attractive. Maybe it even looks foolish to us. Will we trust Him? Will we be obedient to the divine vision? Will we receive the slave girl along with the rich and powerful fashion mogul. Are we willing to have every crutch ripped out from underneath us if it means trusting God more? Are we willing to have every crutch ripped out from underneath us if it means that we trust God more? These are serious questions that have to be answered if we're going to move forward. And our only hope of answering them is if we know that our odd God is indeed sovereignly in control of each and every part of our lives and each and every part of our life together. Maybe it's 43,000 people at a basketball arena. Maybe it's 53 people at the Midgift Center. Either way, God is sovereign god is in control will you trust him and will you trust us let's pray god there are times in my life if i'm honest with you that i get pretty mad at you Because I'm smarter than you, God. I wouldn't do things the way that you do them, God. What you're doing is odd. What you're doing is uncomfortable. What you're doing is frustrating and sad and hard if I'm honest with myself. Is there a way, God, that in Your sovereignty You could bring hope? Is there a way, God, in Your sovereignty that You could bring joy? Is there a way in Your sovereignty, God, that You can prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? Is there a way in Your sovereignty, God, that You can cause my cup to overflow? Is there a way, God, in Your sovereignty, that You can convince me that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? is there a way in your sovereignty, God, that you can convince me that what you are doing here is good? I believe there is, God. I believe there's a way. And I believe that there is fruitful ministry in the immediate and far-reaching future for this group of people. I believe it because I believe that you are sovereignly in control of this group of people, God. As odd as it may look, as odd as it may feel, I believe you're in control. Preach that gospel to me by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. May we preach that gospel to each other, and may we preach that gospel to a lost and dying world that needs to hear it. Take us to Lydia. Lydia. Take us to the slave girl. Take us to the jailer. And may we see salvation spring forth in their lives. May we see the ministry multiplied and your glory magnified, God. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this day. And I thank you, God, that you are sovereign. And I rest in that. And I rejoice in that. May we do the same, God, as we sit down to eat. We thank you for food. We thank you for fellowship. And we thank you for being God. We ask that you would bless our time and our food. In Jesus' name. And amen. Would we'll just stand and let me pronounce a benediction over you as we conclude here. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.